Hey, let me take a moment and uh, can we just also welcome those who are online? We love our online family. So glad that you guys are here. All right, so we are uh, starting off today in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And uh, last week, we looked at uh, verses 28, 29, and 30. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of the central verse in those three passages, right? Romans 8, 28 says that, uh, that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Now, I just want you, as, we, as the Apostle Paul is going to encourage the church today, I want you to think about that. Here's what's at stake. God is actually working in every circumstance to bring out good in your life. What that means is that no matter where you are today, whether you are at the best moment of your life, that is not all the good that God is working into your life, that there is more available for you. But it also means that if you're falling down right now and you just feel like you're at the end, you're just emotionally done, you are tired, you are exhausted, you feel like, I don't think there's any more that I can do, you need to know that even in the midst of all of what you're looking at in your life right now that's telling you that things are not good and they're not gonna get better, that God is actually at work to do something good and beautiful in your life. It is his desire we're gonna look at today because we're in a series right now called How to, be Un- How to Get Unstuck stuck, we're going to look at one very specific idea that keeps us stuck in our relationship with God. So go ahead, and if you will, and open your Bibles right now to Romans 8, verse 31. And uh, here's, here's our verse that we're going to start off with. As Paul has looked at verses 28, 29, and 30, it has talked about the goodness of God for every believer. Now, in verse 31, he basically says, what shall we say in response in response to these things? These things what? That God is working actively to bring good and beautiful things into your life. So in other words, what is our response when God is doing that? And he says, here's one of them. If God is for us, who can come against us? And on some very basic level, this is clearly true if you're a follower of Jesus. Why? I mean, just think about just the definition. By the way, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're still trying to figure out your relationship with God and how you're gonna affiliate or not affiliate with him. You need to know that like by the definition of the, of, the, of the term God, it requires a God who's powerful, right? I mean, we don't serve a God or any God we wouldn't want to serve who's just like us. And so by definition, God is omnipotent. It's one of the characteristics of God. He's omnipotent, right? In other words, he's able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He is powerful in that way. Because of that, Paul asks the question, if God is for us, who could be against us? So if you put yourself in the position of being in opposition to God, you're standing against a force that is insurmountable. You're talking about a force that created the heavens and the, and the, and the whole universe. And so ultimately, he says, there's, it's a rhetorical question. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can, who can be against us? The answer is no one. So when you have a proper relationship with God, there is no one who can stand against you or what God is doing in you. Now, this is, the, this is where the rubber hits the road for us, and this is where, where, we, where things get problematic. It says, and this is a conditional clause, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? So the if part of this, if God is for us. Now, that's the problem. And it's also the solution. Because I think for many of us, even if you grew up in the church and walked with Jesus for a long time, you don't, you're not sure that God is really for you. You might say, sure, he's theologically good. All of that's fine. He's powerful. He's glorious. All these things the Bible tells us about God, but we don't personally believe deep down in our spirit that God is actually for you and for me. 
And the result of that, the consequence of that, is that when he asks us to do something or he wants to take us to another level of spiritual maturity, what ends up happening is we don't want to go. Why? Because we're not sure underneath it all that we really trust him, that we fully believe that at the end and behind all the circumstances of God in our life, all the interactions with him, that he has our best interest. And because of that, we protect ourselves. And it causes us to lack intimacy with God. It's no different than if you were in a relationship with somebody else, like a spouse or someone that you love deeply, and you held back from that person. If you hold back from that person, they can only know you to a certain degree. They would only experience the depths of what you let them experience of your personhood. Same thing with God. God's like, I'm not going to just invade and punch all the walls down. What I'm going to do is ask you, can I come in? And our response to that is yes or no. Our response to that is sometimes as Christians, yes in these areas, but no in these other areas. And that's challenging for us because in these areas that we restrict from him, we, we're stuck. So what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, one of the things that we, the, the people who can be against us are ourselves sometimes. So let's take a look at that. Reasons why we don't believe that he is for us. Some of them have to do with him. Some of them have to do with us. And listen, if you're trying to figure out your relationship with God right now, this right here is one of the fundamental obstacles that you are going to have to figure out on your way to Jesus. Like, do I really believe he's good? Because if you don't believe and you don't begin with that premise, then why would you trust him? So what we're gonna do is kind of build a case for that. And I'm gonna just start by basically saying this that there are reasons for us, reasons inside of us many times that we don't believe that he's for us. Number one, number one, we might think we're undeserving. I'm undeserving. And you go, well, pastor, Mike, it's easy for you. See, see, when God, the Bible says that God is for you, that is what God has decided on his own apart from you. And you go, well, you don't understand. You don't know the things that I was doing last week. You don't understand my background, the bad things that I've done, how I've committed myself to wickedness at times. You don't know. You don't know what I've done. So therefore, he can't love a person like me. <laughs> you need to know. Like he specializes in a person like you. Like he comes for to seek and save the lost, not the found. He comes so that your heart will be open. He wants to demonstrate his glory. What is the greater way of doing that than to take someone like you and someone like me and transform their whole life? That's what he wants. And so you're not so unlovable. That's the second one. Some of you were lied to and you were told a long time ago, maybe somebody walked out on you. Maybe someone just said it straight. Maybe it was when you were a kid. They said, you're not worthy. You're not lovable. And you just took this lie and you placed it at the core of who you are. It's damaged all of your interpersonal relationships. It's damaged all kinds of business relationships because when someone gets close, you realize, no, no, I'm not valuable enough. I cannot be loved. And it is a lie. And it's kept you stuck in your relationship with God. For some of you, it's not that. It's not that at the core I'm unlovable. It's that when you've tried things and you stepped out and you risked things, you got your hand slapped, or at least that's what it seemed like. And so for you you feel defective. Why can these other people seem to do this? And this is the trap of comparison. Why do these other people seem to succeed when I don't seem to succeed? And when you stepped out and you tried to trust a little bit, what ended up happening is you felt like it didn't pan out for you. And so you feel maybe there's something defective about you. It's not defective. It's the process by which God changes and transforms a heart. He allows good things and bad things into the life. And it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. He's working all things for his good. 
to make a change inside of you. Some people think I'm just a loser or I'm weak or I'm stupid. I'm not good enough. The one that's, that sticks to me is the one that says, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be vulnerable. And again, this is self-protection at its, at its worst. It's somewhere along the way someone hurt you and you said never again and you put a boundary around your life that you thought was healthy, but it's really unhealthy because no one can love you or come into the boundary because you're like, I'm not going to be stupid again and I'm not going to get hurt. And so you keep the Lord out, you keep other people out and you push them away. And there's only so much relationship in so much relationship coin that you're ever going to have because they can only get this close to you. There's a wall around you. And the question is, will you maintain that wall? Will you drop that wall? And it will absolutely take you risking to do so. So I want you to see up on the screen a principle that's behind some of this. If God is for me, that changes me. That changes me. Like when God is for you, it changes the way that we feel about ourselves. This is, this is like having the king. It's not like it is having the king of heaven on your side. And when he looks down, and I'm going to talk to you about this in a second, but when he looks down from heaven, he sees something beautiful inside of you, something glorious inside of you. We'll talk about that in a second. But this is the real point here. I want you to see it up on the screen. If you don't believe that God is for you, you won't believe what he can do with you. Now, listen. Um, years ago, uh, we planted this church in February. It'll be 19 years. 19 years ago, I was fired from a ministry job and it was hard. And like you, um, I, I had a really bad encounter with the church. Now, when I became a Christian, God changed my life radically. So I knew that if I was ever going to be a mature Christian, if I was ever going to grow in Christ, I always needed to be attached to the church. But it was the first time that I thought to myself, the church is terrible and I don't want to be part of it. And so I was still pretty young and, and, I, and I was headed towards medical school before I went to, into ministry. And so I thought, you know what, Kelly is my wife. I said, Kelly, what we're gonna do is I'm gonna make application. We're making application to medical school. I'm gonna go back to medical school. I'll just be a doctor and be done with this. Not with the church, but just done with professional ministry doing the kinds of things that I do. And, and we were like, yep, that's the plan. That's what we're gonna do. And all of a sudden what happened was God started doing some things because he was caring for us, right? If you don't believe that God is for you, then you're not gonna know that God, what God can do with you. And so what happened was crazy. We weren't planning on starting a church. We, I mean, think about yourself, starting a church. Like that's, okay, I could do a franchise. I can do a business. I could be a therapist. I could be a doc. Let's start a church. No, that's not something that normal people think. Like that's not on the options of the menu. And then what happened was, when we lost our job, we found out we were pregnant with my, uh, she was pregnant, not we, but, but she was pregnant with, with my son, my, my second son, and we had no money. I was like, we're going to have to sell the house. Um, just, it was a panic moment for us. And all of a sudden, the Lord showed up in powerful and strange ways. Literally, people would ring our doorbell and run away. And, and not the bad kind of thing, but we would open it, and on the chair that's right next to our door, it's still there, and it was sitting there and there'd be like this envelope and there would just be fat stacks of cash inside of it. I don't know. I was like, well, this is a delight, you know? And uh, I was like, this is fantastic. What's happening here? And there would be notes inside of it saying, we're praying for you. We love you. And God's not done with you. God is not done with you. He's not done with you. No matter what's going on right now. And... 
Over and over again, people said things like this. They would come up to us and they would say things like this. Hey, Pastor Mike, they would knock on the door. Hey, you've never met me before, but I was part of the church that you were part of. And here's, here's, here's what I want you to know. God told me like six months before you left that I was supposed to go with you and plant a church with you. And I'm like, he hasn't told me that. <laughs> like he hasn't like, no, like this is, I'm not hearing that from anybody. And Kelly, you know, somewhere along the way, my wife, she goes, Mike, I think we're supposed to plant a church. I'm like, don't talk to me about that ever again. Like I, it's so stressful to me. We don't know anything about planting a church. What, what is happening right now? But here's what was happening. God was saying, hey man, I'm for you. And sometimes God shows up in miraculous ways. Sometimes he shows up in a friend, a neighbor or something, but he says, I'm for you. And when you get that God is for you, then you can figure out what he'll do with you. But sometimes we try to step ahead and go, what is he gonna do with me? But we don't have the internal trust in the Lord. Some pastors and theologians have defined almost every sin by saying all sin starts with a disbelief in God in some way. That we don't believe he's good for us. We don't believe he's good in our money. We don't believe he's good in our families. We don't believe he's good with our friendships. We don't believe he's good with our dreams. But our job, and this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in this text, is to show us that every single thing in our life, when we encounter God, is on the other side of that, it's a good father who's trying to bring you into relationship with his son, Jesus. So he can bring you home one day and heal your heart once and for all. And that changes everything. Verse 32 says it like this, because God will not spare the greatest of gifts. He says it like this, he, God, who did not spare his own son, the great gift that he gave to us, but gave him up, gave who up? Gave his son Jesus up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So let's take a look at this. So the first and gracious gift that God gives to us is this. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up. What does it mean that he gave him up? Because God knows everything, because he's all powerful and he knows everything, he's omniscient, right? That's the word. So because he knows everything, he knows what's going to happen. When the father gave Jesus to the world, when he sent him into the world, the father knew that Jesus would be beaten. He knew that he would be bruised. He knew that he would go through trauma that would be terrible for the average person. And Jesus was not just some spirit. He was actually an embodied person, fully God, fully man. And so when Jesus suffered on the cross, we're gonna talk about this in a second, but when Jesus, when Jesus suffered on the cross, he really went through painful circumstances. Did you know that when Romans took this, this lashing that they gave to Jesus and others who were criminals, they would take these, 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 um, these whips, they were made of leather, but they would weave into the leather little chunks of glass. And they would take them and they would like this and would wrap around the person. And then that's where the real damage took place. They would pull it off. It would take chunks of the body away. Oftentimes a lashing of 12 or 15 times was actually a death sentence. And so Jesus went through terrible, terrible pain. And yet, look at this. The Bible teaches us that it was God's great pleasure to crush his son. And when we first hear that or read something like that, we're like, that's, that's terrible. But the only way that he could give up the thing that he loved the most is if he believed a greater good would come out of the suffering. And that greater good was that it offered salvation to anyone who would believe that we would have salvation and restoration. And God was willing to take all of that upon himself. It's the most inequitable exchange in human history because we didn't deserve it. But that's the very nature and the beauty of love. Love happens not when you have rose-colored glasses on and everybody seems wonderful and everything's great. Love happens when you collide and you remain. Love happens when you collide and then you remain. 
That's when love happens. And that's what Jesus did. He could have called down a legion of angels when he was on the cross to say, destroy these people. He could have been fed up, but no. Jesus himself actually submitted to his father's will. Not my will, God, but your will be done. And the father did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us. Look at this. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So along with Jesus, you're also gonna get gifts. And these are the things that unfortunately that people treasure sometimes more than the primary gift, which is Jesus himself. But he's still a father, he's good. You know, when I give good gifts to my kids for Christmas or throughout the year or whenever, I never take into consideration their bad behavior. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't go, okay, well, they've been good right now, I'm gonna give good. I just give the good gifts because I wanna be a good father to them. The worst message in the world is Santa Claus. It's like, have you been good? Have you been naughty or nice? What a terrible moralistic lesson that is. So you got coal, you stink as a child. You know what I mean? Like, but think about that. That's the cosmic lesson that sometimes we want to see in the life of other people. Good people should get good things. Bad people should get bad things. That's karma. It's Eastern religion and not Christianity. Because karma, they, you know what they call karma, right? It has another side to it. Karma is a terrible thing. And, uh, and, 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 and that's right, right? And so, but why is it a terrible thing though? Here's why. Karma, karma says this, you get what you deserve. And then by the way, as things are going bad, you deserve what you get. And God says, no, 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 no. You're unlovable at times and you're sinful and you didn't choose me, but I choose you and I love you. And when things collide between us, I remain. And that's the strength that we have in our relationship with Jesus. The word gracious here, you know, that he gave him graciously give us all things. The word gracious here, it actually means with an abundance of care and an extravagance. I love that. I want to be extravagant towards my kids. I want them to know the love of a father, both materially and immaterially. I want to transfer Jesus to their life. I want to give them blessings and protection and watch over them. Why? Because it's what a good father does. And it's what our heavenly father does too. So I want you to see the, the people who scream, where is the judgment? Where's the condemnation? I mean, there's a real, you know, Christians do this and, and, and there's some truth to it. It's just not fully truthful. And they'll say things like this, but where's, God is a judge. The Bible describes him as a judge. Where is the condemnation for sin? Friends, you need to really get clear in your heart this next part that I'm gonna talk about. If you walk away from anything in this entire message, this is it. A person who screams, Bad people deserve bad things and good people deserve good things. Don't understand the gospel at all. Here's why. Go ahead and put this principle up. God has decided that in many cases, the way he will judge us is by condemning his son and throwing all of our sin and punishment on Jesus. Let that wash over you for a minute. That means Jesus died not for sin generically, but Jesus died for your individual sins. So, so the great suffering of Jesus, like we talked about, the beatings, the lashings, the crown of thorns, the hanging on a cross, the suffocation unto death. Those are terrible things. But people before Jesus experienced those things. Romans were frequently crucified on crosses. It was a daily activity for those who fell short of Roman standards. I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus' great pain was not just the physical suffering. Yes, that was bad, but you and I could go through that. Jesus' suffering happens when he's on the cross and he's hanging there and he screams out, El hail, hail, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in a way that don't ask me how to explain it because God is three and he is one in some way that we don't fully comprehend. Nothing I've ever read has explained it to me. No teacher I've ever been able to watch has ever explained it to me. But there Jesus is on the cross as all of our sins are poured into Jesus. Watch this, watch this, watch this. And God judges him unto death. The father turns his face away from Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, again, I can't explain it. Jesus felt loneliness for the very first time in his life as he bore the sin that he who knew no sin would become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God through Christ. Praise God. He healed us in that moment by taking all of the condemnation of judgment. So does judgment occur? Absolutely. But in God's great mercy and in his great humility, he is the one that's judged not us. And so he does this extravagant thing. It's just, it's, it's incredible. See, God has decided that in many cases, the way he will judge us is by condemning his son and throwing all of our sin and punishment on Jesus. He continues like this in, in verse 33. He says, if all of that is true, then, then, then what is it? Then what do we do? Who will bring any charge? A charge is an accusation. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. So he's saying this, if you and I get in our hearts that God is for us and he's justified us, what does that big fancy Bible word mean? It means that when God looks at us and says, hey, we're good, I declare you righteous, right? We're good. That means who can come behind what God says and, and bring an accusation against us for those whom God has chosen. When God has said we're good, don't let somebody come alongside you and say, no, you're not. When someone says, hey, uh, you, don't need, you need to do better with your behavior in order for God to love you, you go, no, I don't. Why? I, we do better with our behavior. Watch this, so important. We do our be better with our behavior, not because we make God happy or we're gonna lose our salvation. We do it because we're grateful. He has saved us, he has changed us, and I wanna be the person that he wants me to be. It is God who justifies and he does it like this, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? Who can condemn you like you? Who is this person if you are a Christian? And he answers this with no one. No one can do that to you. Christ Jesus who died, by the way, even more than that, if he had died and that was it, that would be enough, but that would not be enough. But he was raised, from, uh, raised to life. In other words, he was resurrected from the dead. And by the way, right now he is sitting at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. You know what that means? That means not only can people not accuse us here, but people can't accuse us in heaven. The word uh, Satan simply means the accuser. His full-time job is to go, I'm watching your life and I'm gonna accuse you before the father. So when we blow it and we sin, we fall short, our tempers get the best of us, something happens. There's Lucifer up in heaven and he's going, hey, father, did you see this? Did you see what Mike did? Did you see what Steve did? Did you see what John did? Did you see what Sarah did? She blew it. And in between Satan and the father is Jesus. And, the, and Jesus is interceding for us. And he's saying, no, no, you cannot throw any accusation against my people. Mike is covered by the blood of the lamb. And I don't see or count that sin anymore. I've been judged for it. Father, he has perfect standing with us. So when the father looks through Jesus to you, he sees only Jesus. 
He doesn't see your daily sins and your weaknesses in that way. Does he desire, does the Holy Spirit desire for you to grow and become you know, more moral and better? Yes is the answer to that. But for some of us, we have this voice in the back of our head that's screaming, hey, do better, try harder. That's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn and yell at you. The voice of the Holy Spirit gently reminds you, hey, point your life back at Jesus. Or hey, danger over here. You're making some choices right now. That could hurt you. And I love you. Why? Because every encounter we have, every interaction we have with the Father is one where the Father has our best interest in mind. And it is in our best interest to stay away from sin and to walk away from that so that we can live a free life and a whole life. And in between that time where we see Jesus face to face and, the, and where we are right now, he is constantly interceding on our behalf, praying for us, walking with us, talking to the Father. So much so that Romans 8.1, a very popular verse for people who have been in the church for a long time, says this, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where's the behavior here? No, he says, for, for people who are good, in other words, good people get good things, bad people get bad things. No, no, he's saying, there is now none, no condemnation. When? for anyone. How? Because they're in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. You shouldn't listen to condemnation from others. You shouldn't listen to to condemnation that comes from the inside either. In fact, condemnation that comes from the inside is probably one of the most difficult things to get straight in our own spiritual lives. We might look at the Father and say, I trust you, I believe in you, but then they have that critical spirit inside of our, inside of our heads that are screaming at us all the time. You're a failure, you're a loser, you're not gonna mount up, you're never gonna be the man that God wants. But when we know what God has for, when we know that God is for us, we know what he can do with us, right? First John three nineteen through 20 on the screen. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. What does that mean? It means... This is how we know that we're on the right track and that we're believing something that is truthful. We set our hearts at rest in his presence. Do you know how many people do not feel at peace? Christians, I'm talking to you. Do you know how many people do not feel at peace just sitting in the presence of the Lord? You got these things running through your mind. He's mad at me. He's disappointed in me. He's frustrated with me. He's probably at the end of the road with me. I've messed this up. I've messed this up. I continue to do it over and over and over again. I can't get a hold of my behavior. And he says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. Number one, we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Do you know whose uh, presence that I am the most at rest in? Like in this, in this world? Probably my wife, Kelly. Because she knows everything about me. She knows the good. She knows the bad. And yet she's still here. And so I can be there with her. And I don't have to pretend, and I don't have to be Pastor Mike. I just get to be Mike. I am at rest in her presence. We've got to remove the pretense. Stop with the fancy prayers. (laughs) Stop with coming with the idea that you're coming to impress him. Be who you are in that moment with the Lord and find rest in his presence. So how, how do we do that? Well, verse 20 says us. How do we do that? How do we find rest, rest in his presence? Well, if our hearts condemn us, notice that this is written 2,000 years ago to people in the Roman Empire, and they still had hearts that were condemning them. This is not something that's changed inside humanity for the last 2,000 years. If our hearts condemn us, how do, we, how, do we, how do we figure out what to do with that? We know that God is greater than our hearts. Listen, let me tell you a strategy we use today and a strategy that, that, that doesn't work today, and we use it all the time, and one that we should use. Here it is. When your heart's condemning you and you're walking around, and remember again, that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict you. 
But conviction leads to life. That means closer relationship with God, not discouragement, destruction, and all that kind of stuff. The Holy Spirit will always make you more like Jesus, not tear you down, right? So if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. What does that mean? It means that if my voice is constantly screaming at me, here's what we tend to do today. We tend to go, you know, I just feel so bad about myself. You know what? I'm awesome. I'm enough. Everything's great. It's all going to work out in the end. We tell ourselves positive affirmations, and positive affirmations only work when you feel positive. Seriously, think about it. Like, try to, try to find out your cancer and go, I feel great. No, you don't. You have cancer. Real problems are not solved by positive affirmations. Here's what we do instead. When you're down and things are falling apart, you talk to God and you know that God is greater than our hearts. What he tells us is true about our life is true, regardless of whether we feel it or not. You have to let your brain be bigger than your heart. And when you let your brain be bigger than your heart, you're able to say to yourself the gospel, I know that you're for me. I'm looking at my circumstances right now and none of them, none of them seem to say that you're good to me right now. But I know what your word says. I know it's true. And because of that, I will trust in you. I'll make myself vulnerable. I'll open up. I won't guard myself. I won't put a shell around my life. I won't protect myself. I will trust that you are good for me, God. And in doing so, he begins to do a miracle of work inside of us. Verse 35 says it like this. Paul, who's gone through all of these things, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If accusation from the outside can't do it, accusation from the inside can't do it, who will separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, how can I be separated from God? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger or sword? Nothing. He's like, nothing can do that. And Paul has gone through trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. He has the moral credibility to say these things. He's not theoretical right now. He's like, I've been through it all. And you know what? I'm still here. Why? Because nothing can separate you from the love of God. So God will go to the ends of the earth to show you that he is for you. So last week um, I was gone. I wasn't preaching here uh, last weekend. And we kind of set my schedule up uh, like way ahead of time. Like we have almost a year of messages in the can right now as we're working forward to the future. Like we are way ahead of what we're trying to do, accomplish. So we're doing, we've already finished this time next year's messages and all of that kind of like to make sure that everything's done the right way. And so one of the things that we do is we schedule my days off. And so we were scheduling some more days off this, this year so that I could let other guys come in and preach because it's important that you hear a plurality of voices and stuff. And it's really helpful. And so, but I'm not good at it. I'm not good at taking off time, especially, especially if I'm not doing something, like if I'm not at the beach with my family or in the mountains with my family or something or doing something like that. So I was literally a mile and a half away, like, and so I was texting our executive pastor and, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, hey man, what's going on this morning? How are, how are the numbers? How are we doing? Is everybody okay? How's the worship? You know, and he was like, leave me alone, you know? And he's like, I got stuff to do. And it was really funny, but I'm just sitting there. I'm so kind of like anxious about stuff. So I decide I'm gonna, I go to this gym over here, the RDV, Sportsplex, and, and I'll go sw- I go swim over there. And so I'm like, I'll go swim, get some of this nervous energy out of me right now. I'm so little, I like, I hate taking days off when I'm just doing this. It's so dumb. And so I swim and then I go here and, and I'm sitting in like the hot tub in the, in the men's section, of course, in the men's section. And uh, can you imagine, ladies? I mean, it's so strange. That'd be so odd. 
But I'm sitting there in the men's, in the men's hot tub. And as I'm sitting there kind of doing this, guy comes in and he sits down next to me and he's got tattoos all over his body. And I was just kind of looking at him and I go, man, I go, I like your tattoos. And uh, which I really do, just so you know, I loved, I don't have one on my body. I love them though. I'm totally gonna come unsleeved up one day. This is gonna be like Mike here, next Mike, right? So um, I'm looking at this, I said, I like your tattoos. And he goes, um, thank you, I really regret them. And I've hardly ever hear anybody say that. You know, I, I might hear them say, well, I got this when I was 16, I didn't like that. But, but I said, well, tell me why you, don't, you regret them. He says, well, I've got them on my fingers. I got them on my neck, I was a chef at one point in my life and, and it's really cost me a lot of jobs. And I was like, I'm sorry to hear that. And he said, he said, uh, um, he said, what do you do that you have employees that have a bunch of tattoos? I said, I'm a pastor. And he smiled. And that's usually for me, like outside of this context, that's one of two things. One, I'm so glad to, 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 to meet you. The other is I'm gonna kill you, right? Like it's one of those two things. And so he smiled and, and uh, he, said, um, he said, you know, um, I grew up as an atheist. And he said, it wasn't until our firstborn was being born that he went through a really difficult birth. And I said, man, the same thing happened to my wife and I. My wife ended up in a coma. It was a mess. And it was just, it was crazy. He said, I was sitting there at the hospital and I was thinking about my family. They're of no help to me. I was thinking about my money. It was of no help to me. There's nothing that could do anything to change it. And so I just said, God, if you're real, change the circumstances right now somehow in some way. And sometimes God does that, by the way, and sometimes he doesn't. But in this case, he did do it. And the baby was fine and the baby's great today and everything's good. And he said, that's when I moved from this place of atheism to being able to believe that there really is a God. I said, that's amazing, man. And he said, yeah, we just moved from uh, Miami. And, you know, I told my wife and he said, when we married, I married this Catholic girl, this good Catholic girl. And she didn't mind the tattoos or the rough life or what, all that stuff. But she said, he, said, he said, she wasn't a big fan of me being an atheist. And so I told her that when we moved here, I would come to church with her. And, and I was just sitting there and Lord's all over me in this conversation. I'm like, ooh. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, I, was, and I, was, I was like, I was sitting there and, and I, thought to, I thought, I said to him, listen, man, I'm never here at 11.15, ever. Like this is the first time I've ever been swimming or at the gym at 11.15 or 11.30 on Sunday morning. And you'll probably never see me here again. Like you'll never. I said, but I truly believe the reason why I was supposed to take off this weekend was God wanted me to tell you that you're supposed to come to grace. Listen, man. My whole day was screwed up because of this guy. I took off the weekend. God's like, make me anxious to go do that. I went to go swim, the anxious, just so God could say, hey, you're wanted. You're important. Like you need to be here today. God will go to the ends of the world to reach you. God will do anything that he can. And you know what? Nothing will get in the way of that. Hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, hot tubs. None of it will get in the way of what God is going to do in the life of somebody when he says, I want to bring good into your world. And here's how it, it ends with Paul saying, look, this is our mission for you. For your sake, we face death all day long. Remember, first century Israel was very similar to 21st century Afghanistan under Taliban rule. If you mess things up, you're going to get your head cut off like John the Baptist. It was a rough world. And so Paul says, we are considered by other people to be sheep, to be slaughtered. And most of them were, except for one, John. Verse 37 says it this way, no, <laughs> no, that's not what I believe. So others can think this about me, but no, in all of these things, all of this trial, tribulation, difficulties, we are more than conquerors. In other words, I'm not just getting by. I'm not just okay. I'm not a victim. Bad things have happened to me. The world and the circumstances have showed me that I can't trust God, but no, 
in all these things, I'm a conqueror. I will overcome these things because that's what love does. I will overcome them for you. You will overcome them for your families. We will overcome them for our city. Why? Because we will not be broken down. Why? Because we know he loves us. And when you know that he is for you and that he loves you, you will absolutely conquer those circumstances. And he ends it like this, verse 38. For I'm convinced, there's no wiggle room here. This is what I'm committed to. I'm all in. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul was convinced that nothing can separate him from the love of God, and we should be too. Amen? Amen. Father, we come to you right now and we acknowledge that there are times when we know these theological truths, but it's hard, that, that it's hard to believe that you're for us. Help us not to fix our eyes on what is seen all around us, but what is unseen, you, eternity, what you're going to do in us so that we can know that you are a good father who loves us with all of your heart, that you held back no good gift from us and that you're still not doing that. Lord, help us to be people who don't protect ourselves and hide from you and each other. We need you desperately. It's in your name we pray. Amen.